This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hello, I'm Joyita Gupta, host of The Pulse on AMI Audio. It's a show featuring in-depth conversation about the biggest challenges facing the disability community. With today's fast-paced news cycles, it's often hard to get the big picture. Join me and other members of the disability community as we take a deeper dive into the issues that matter to you. Listen to The Pulse wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Tales from the Halifax School for the Blind, an AMI-audio original podcast where we explore what everyday life was like inside this legendary institution. Over the span of 112 years, the Halifax School for the Blind was home to thousands of blind and partially sighted children from Atlantic Canada and beyond. Join me, Terry Kelly, and my fellow former students as we take a trip down memory lane reflecting on formative experiences and cherished memories from our beloved alma mater. In this episode, we meet Cleon Smith, and for the final time this season, we're joined by our friends Robert Mercer and Vivian O'Neill. We'll hear about the daily routine, youthful hijinks, exploring Halifax, and how we shared in the cultural backgrounds of our fellow students. Of today's storytellers, Cleon Smith was the first to arrive at the Halifax School for the Blind and the last to leave. Living at the school from the early 1950s until the mid-70s. Cleon's education began at the two-room schoolhouse in his hometown of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. His teacher tried to help as best she could, but with 40 other students to teach, Cleon wasn't getting the attention he needed. Having been stationed at Windsor Park during the war, Cleon's father was already familiar with the Halifax School for the Blind. Cleon joined us from his home in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, to share some early memories and tell us how the school shaped his future. In the summer of 51, I remember they wrote a letter to the school asking if I could be admitted to the school, and the answer came back, yes. And the superintendent of the school at that time was Charles Allen, and he came and uh, visited us at my home and interviewed me and filled out the papers for application to become a student. That's how I became a student. We drove up from Shag Harbor to Halifax in my grandfather's car, which was a 1947 Hudson, and I entered the Halifax School for the Blind. The first person that I met, well, was Charles Allen. When we entered the building, we went in, I remember we went in his office and I had a bit of an interview type of thing. And he explained to, to us where, you know, that I would be going to the junior, what's called the junior department. The buildings were connected with by a long corridor. And we went down to the junior department and he introduced us to, I think the lady's name at that time was Mrs. Graham. She, you know, explained how things worked, you know, that, that we'd be, I'd be living in a dorm with other, other kids. There were about nine or 10 of us in the dorm. So, she took us up to the dorm, which was on the second floor. Some of the kids were there and introduced me and picked out a bed that I, that would be mine and picked out a locker where I would be storing my personal gear and uh, had a little chat, Got kind of got to meet, you know, got to meet her and know her a bit. And then she left and there was, like I say, there were some other, other students there about my age, nine, ten years old. 
And we got just got talking and uh, where are you from, blah, 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 questions like that. And I would uh, ask, remember asking them, where are you from? And one fellow was from, you know, they were from Newfoundland, PEI, New Brunswick, all over the Maritimes. Where are you from was usually first on a long list of questions for a new student. No matter where you were born or what your background, the Halifax School for the Blind sought to help every child with vision loss receive a rich education and learn the skills necessary to lead an independent and prosperous life. Though the curriculum mostly stared us towards reading, writing, arithmetic, music, and the many trades of the day, we learned just as many life lessons from our fellow students. Robert Mercer chatted with us from his home in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, to share recollections of what first stood out to him about his classmates. I do remember at school that we, we knew things about other kids that you wouldn't necessarily pay much attention to in, in regular school. We knew where all these kids came from. I mean, I knew, I knew most of the kids at school by the town they were born, uh, first of all. And so that must have come up a lot in our conversations. I also knew a lot of the children by their degree of vision or lack of vision. You uh, got to know what glaucoma was. You knew kids who had glaucoma were blinded from glaucoma. You knew kids who were blinded because of cataracts, kids who were blinded because of oxygen insufficiency at birth. For some reason, all of that seemed to circulate. Maybe it was just part of who we were. You know, I always say that you, you don't you never separate yourself from being visually impaired or being totally blind. I mean, you're, you're that. You're never separated from it. So it's a matter of interest to you. So when you're talking to other children who are equally disabled, uh, you tend to inquire about, well, what's wrong with your eyes? <laughs> so I knew a lot about blindness uh, and conditions of blindness by the time I graduated at school. I probably, I think of cataract, I think of Melvin McNeil. You know, that, is that kind of a thing? That's part of the bonding. And, of course, you tend to uh, stay with uh, kids of your own age. And I'm not sure exactly why, but in my case, I tended to gravitate to the, ch the kids who could see just about as well as I could at the time. Uh, a lot of totally blind children seem to be spending more time with totally blind children. It's just the way things seem to happen. There's sort of a mutual attraction there, and it brings you together. And because of that, it's something that you don't forget. In 1960, Vivian left the McLean family firm outside Summerside to attend the Halifax School for the Blind. We connected with Vivian O'Neill at her home in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, to hear about how she made friends with the other girls at the school. You know, I was fortunate I made a best friend, not the first year, because she went home the first year. She was a little younger, but the next year... And we were best friends for 10 years. So I was very fortunate to have a, a best friend. And then there were several other girls who were also sort of best friends. And we, we had a little group of girls. And, you know, I don't, we all got along and we had, uh, we had each other and uh, we were a group and we didn't, you know, nobody got excluded. We didn't fight too much or anything. You know, we, uh, each person had their own special talents, I think was really how it went. Some people were incredibly musical and some people were wise and sensible, like my friend Barbara. And I'm not sure I, I was useful. I could see a little so people could I could take people out once we got older. So that was probably my one of my useful talents. And um yeah, we just uh we, we helped each other. We were practically a unit. 
Vivian McLean quickly struck up a lifelong friendship with Barbara Legay. She recalls what first drew her to Barbara and the other girls in their group. Barbara was a wonderful, wonderful person. She had became a civil servant and then she trained as a lawyer. She was a very wise and erudite person, even at six. And I kind of recognized that and I was grateful to have her for a friend. And my other friends, uh, all of the girls, Anne especially, was marvelous. She was a wonderful person and an incredible musician. And she could listen to her records, like she'd listen to the Mamas and the Papas records. And she could then pound them out on the piano and we would stand all around and sing all afternoon. Sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, we'd spend our time singing, doing sing songs with and probably 10, 11-year-old girls pounding it out on the piano. While the girls were gathered around the piano singing, over in the boys' residence, you'd often find kids closely huddled around the television set. Although there was just the one small TV with only a couple of channels, Robert remembers it was incredibly popular. So you'd have 20 or 30 boys sitting around this little television trying to, to sneak a peek of what was going on, you know. And if you were lucky, you managed to get a seat in the front row, you know, if you got there early enough. And uh, I do remember people running from uh, dinner or, or lunchtime, running up to get a seat at the television. If you weren't close in, you, you might stand at the back and listen, but you weren't necessarily watching television. There were games in the room as well, uh, all kinds of games, checkers, chess, uh, all kinds of things that you could easily convert into something that a blind person could play. It was a nice, bright kind of room. There, you didn't feel crowded there. It was, there. There were tables set up in different places. In addition to that, uh, later on, it mattered a lot that there was a place to go and have a cigarette. We called the smoker. And I think you had to be 13, 14 to get into the smoker at the time. People would find that rather uh, startling today to think that at 13 you might be able to go in and have a cigarette. I doubt if I smoked until I was really 14 or 15 regularly at school. I think at 13 it was just a, a matter of sneaking around, you know. So we'd sneak around the school outside and smoke a cigarette here and there and maybe once in a while sneak into the smoker because there's no way one of the older boys was going to say anything. Apart from that, there was the gymnasium. We were, we'd go down the gym sometimes, you know, uh, when it wasn't uh, gym class, we could go down and play soccer and indoor sports, that kind of thing. Most of the time, though, it was out on the playground. But it wasn't all fun and games. All the antics had to fit within very narrow windows of an extremely rigid schedule. It was pretty rigorous, the routine. I mean, a bell rang at 7.15 in the morning and you were up, you know, and you had to make your bed, you had to clean up, you had to be down in a line to get the breakfast. Uh, so there was a lot of that kind of regimentation. And uh, I think today, looking back at all of that, it's obvi obviously for good reasons. I mean, there were 80 or 90 boys on our side of the school, and then there were uh, just as many girls on the other side. So there had to be routine, you know. But I do remember, as rigorous as it was, when the weekends came, there wasn't very much to do. And I never thought that I would look forward to going to school on Monday morning, but I did when I was at the School for the Blind. Uh, I found the weekends very long. When you're a little bit older, that changes as well. You have other interests. You're, in my case, I was permitted to go out and walk to the library or somewhere else in, in Halifax. So uh, that kind of broke up the weekends a bit. And we had some activities, but 9, 10, 11-year-olds, there, there wasn't a lot going on on the weekends. So I found that kind of long. The school itself, the you know morning assembly to begin with, and then we had 
uh, five periods of school, just uh, taking us right up to one o'clock before we broke for lunch. So that was a long haul. Uh, most of the early classes were devoted to uh, the three R's kind of thing, history and geography and math and the hard subjects, I, I call them that. After that, in the afternoon, it was a bit more relaxed. Um, we had lunch from a lunch period from 1 to 2.30. So school was, we were back in school at 2.30. And we were there till six, five to six in the evening. Uh, now there's a break in the morning and a 15 minute break as well in the afternoon for recess. But apart from that, it was all school. And the afternoons were devoted to uh, things like woodworking shop, manual training, we called it. We had choir. I was in the choir for a while. I took piano lessons as well at school. They were the sort of the softer things that we tended to do in the afternoon. But it was a long day. I mean, we started at basically 7.15 in the morning, and you, you weren't sitting down to dinner until 6 o'clock in the evening. After dinner, there was a bit of a routine as well. Two nights of the week, we'd have a gym uh, from 7 to 9, and that was, that was compulsory for everybody. Uh, whether it was Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, I'm not really sure, but two two nights a week. And the other nights we were expected to um, be in the classrooms to be studying from seven to nine. Now, it wasn't a rigidly uh, supervised study period. So really, if you wanted to leave after a half hour or an hour and go and watch something on television, nobody would stop you from doing things like that. So in that sense, it was a little bit open, but you still it was still part of the routine. When I was there and at age 10, we went to bed at 8.30. I wasn't used to that either, by the way. I, I don't know, at home we'd be up till maybe 10 o'clock at night, you know. 8.30, we had to be in bed with the lights out. Uh, that took a bit of getting used to. But the day was filled in in that sense. There wasn't a lot of time to uh, wonder what, what, what are we going to be doing next. The days were full but there was still room for a few surprises. Many kind and caring people from the community took an interest in the students and volunteered at the school, adding some variety to our routine. One such volunteer would introduce Cleon to the wide world outside the school gates. Sunday afternoons, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Graham, I think his name was. He used to come in every Sunday and take us out for walks. We'd go uh, places like Point Pleasant Park, down the waterfront, Public Garden, Citadel Hill, all the points of interest in Halifax. Every Sunday we'd go to a different place. He was very, very good. And, you know, that's, that was the beginning for me to, of learning what was in Halifax, what Halifax was all about. Cause <laughs> big city compared to Shag Harbor. One of the walks was the first time that I walked over the Angus L. McDonald Bridge after that was built. We took a walk from the school right over to Dartmouth. That was quite a little walk, but that was the first time. It was shortly after the bridge opened, and we walked over and walked back. Looking down, it was, ooh, I'm saying to myself, wow, this is high, you know, that kind of thing, and ocean out there and the, and the boats that were at the, at the waterfront. So it was, it was interesting, and it does stand out in my mind even today. Getting to wander around Halifax with one of the older boys was even more exciting than the group outings with volunteers. Robert figured this out early and would often hit the streets to ogle all the latest models of automobiles. 
actually the first year I was at school, I, I had a friend there by the name of Gary Grant. And Gary and I used to, uh, he was a little bit older, so he was allowed to sign me out. So we used to go out and walk all through the streets of Halifax to uh, all of, in, his, in this case, all of the car dealerships, because Gary was really interested in cars. So we walked miles uh, on the weekend, uh, going from one place to another, and Gary picking up, me too, picking up all of the, the these uh, wonderfully colored books of cars from different dealerships. Uh, that was my introduction to uh, the city itself. A little bit later on, there was a restaurant that was fairly close to the school, a restaurant called the Tasty Food. We'd spend a lot of time there as younger boys. Uh, anytime we'd be out in the evening in the city, we'd always go to the restaurant, even if it was just to sit down and have a glass of pop or something, you know. And I was fond of the library. I spent a lot of time at the uh, public library on uh, Spring Garden Road. Some of the stores on Spring Garden Road really interested me. There was a, a place called Mons Stationery, and I, I was, as I said earlier, I was a bit of a student. Uh, and they had a collection of books at the back of the store with one on butterflies, another one on flowers, and another one. On, and uh, I used to go in there and look at the books, you know, until somebody told me to leave. <laughs> and uh, uh, we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time on Spring Garden Road even just walking up and down the street. It was a, a place where there were lots of people, so there was a bit of the excitement of that as well. Perhaps because things were stricter on the girl side, Vivian had a different response when asked if she enjoyed exploring the city of Halifax. Um, no, because for girls, that didn't come till 12 or 14. So um, I thought it was pretty ugly, pretty black, pretty dirty. Every time you put your hands down in Halifax at that time, there were refineries. There was just dirt everywhere, you know, your fingers would get dirty. There was there was a garden, but it wasn't anything like the great outdoors on PEI. <laughs> so I missed, I think I missed that beauty, you know. Um, but I was grateful for what little there was. But we were in a in that parking lot in front of the VG. It was enclosed by a beautiful old wrought iron fence. And there were beautiful trees and things. So we were fortunate. We really did have more beautiful area than most children in their playgrounds. You know, you could see the old refinery belching. Uh, sometimes it would belch um, flame almost. It would rise and fall. And I, I used to watch that. But I wasn't terribly impressed with the city, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I didn't even appreciate the beautiful old buildings until, you know, I was older. I, I, I don't, it didn't take Halifax. I don't know why. My school took, but Halifax didn't. No matter your race, religion, culture, or creed, members of every community experience blindness and vision loss. Kids came from all over, and for some, adapting to life in the school was a huge adjustment. Thankfully, the dutiful house parents and other caring staff did their best to help all students succeed in the school. I do remember seeing children, a couple who were French, and one girl who was probably Maliseet. And they didn't speak any English when they arrived at school. And that must have been hard. So I remember the house parents trying to make a special effort. They would sort of keep that child with them for a few weeks because the poor child couldn't speak the language. And oddly enough, about two or three weeks into the process, they'd suddenly start speaking English, you know, just both. It just seemed like magic. Of course it wasn't, you know, but, uh, and the house parents would sort of, bring them with them everywhere they went, you know, and sort of look out for them. But it must have been very hard. 
Having such a diverse student body created a rich cultural experience for us kids. There were students from every background you can imagine. There were kids with a French background from, from New Brunswick and different parts of Nova Scotia. There were uh, Mi'kmaq uh, children. There were Maliseet children, uh, people with Oriental backgrounds. Uh, and there were people from uh, PEI, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia. So all the different cultures uh, from each province got to experience those, got to experience food that was sent from the moms and dads from the families for, as, in care packages to different kids. Uh, I remember one of, um, one of my one of my friends uh, came from uh, St. Stephen, New Brunswick, St. Stephen's, where the uh, chocolate factory was. Uh, and so that was uh, when Robbie Ganong's uh, care package came. Uh, everybody flocked to him because he had boxes of chocolates. And then, uh, you know, the Cape Bretoners, their moms would uh, cook donuts in a way that I have never tasted before, and I, I'm still trying to find the recipe. So we got to learn cultures of, of other kids. And on Sunday mornings, eventually, as we got older, uh, in our teens, early teens, and, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, we would be line up, line up for different churches every morning. And we would all, once we get out of the school, unbeknownst to the uh, house parents, we would all visit one another's churches. So we got to learn about different religions, you know, what the Pentecostal people did, what the Baptists did, what the United did, what the Anglicans did, um, what, 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 the, what the Jewish kids did, how the Catholics did things. And it was a great education. And we ended up uh, sometimes going more often to other churches than the ones we were supposed to go to because we enjoyed the pastor or the preacher or what went on to the people we met there. Um, so it was a great learning experience, an experience that most kids don't get. Another experience most kids don't get is to walk the halls of a school as both a student and a staff member. It was truly incredible to be in that environment, and as excited as we were to graduate and begin the next chapter of our lives, leaving came with a lot of sadness. Cleon Smith spent his summer after graduation back home, five years before the infamous Shag Harbor UFO incident. Cleon was pondering career options when an intriguing letter arrived, the author of which had received a letter from the Smith family one decade prior seeking a better education for their son. In 1962, I finished school, and that was in June. So that summer, I didn't really know what I was going to be doing. I had an interview with a gentleman from the CNIB at that time. I was probably going to wind up working in one of their canteens. Okay, back then they they wrote, they had CNID had canteens in public buildings that kind of thing. So I had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Ken O'Toole at CNID at that time after I finished school in '62, and uh, I was possibly going to go to work for them. So that was in June. So after school closed, I went back down to Shag Harbor and kind of just waited around to hear from. Uh, the CNIB, but I didn't hear anything. In the meantime, I got a letter from Charlie Allen, from the superintendent at the School for the Blind, offering me a job. He offered me a job working at the front door, which entailed greeting people coming into the school, showing them where to go, uh, that kind of thing, ringing the bell for the change of classes. I did that. 
that was a pretty interesting little job. And I used to have to do errands downtown, that kind of thing. So that taught me a lot of how to get around Halifax at that time. And I did that for two years. And in 1964, it was, the... Uh, gentleman who was in charge of the senior boys department passed away and uh, two or three days later Charlie Allen called me into his office and offered me a job working with the senior boys I said holy cow I'm now going to have to uh, kind of be in charge of, of the boys that I was friends with I thought that might be a problem. I was fairly close to some of them. Yeah, I was, well, I was, well, I was like 20, 21, 22 years old at that, at that time. And some of them were like in their late teens, 18, 19, 20. So some of them were very close to my age, but believe it or not, they did not really cause me any, any problems. Being so close in age to his wards, Cleon was treated like one of the guys which meant he was not immune to the odd practical joke. They were all good. I mean, the, well, there were things that happened, there were little things, you know, that play, they'd play some tricks on me, that kind of thing. So I can remember going up the stairs, like the, the building was such that you had three flights of stairs, and the dorms were on the second and third floors. And we had, they had like those tin garbage cans, and, you know, for your garbage, every dorm had one. So when it, when it comes bedtime, like 10 o'clock or 9.30, whenever they, people went to bed, you had to make sure that they got into, you know, did their stuff before going to bed, brush their teeth and that kind of stuff. Anyway, after lights out, that sort of thing, you'd go back, I'd go back downstairs and there would be two of us on duty at the time, generally speaking. And I'd hear a racket upstairs. I'd say, well, I gotta go upstairs and see what's going on. So I'd be going up the stairs and I would meet a garbage can coming down the stairs, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, they would throw a garbage can down because they were metal garbage cans. They make a heck of a racket coming down the stairs. So they they do little pranks like that. But generally speaking, it was just all in fun. And we talk about it today sometimes when I get with the right person. You know, Cleon enjoyed his work in the senior boys' residence with complimentary room and board. Being in the heart of Halifax. It was a nice fringe benefit. But in 1975, when this private school became a public institution, under the newly created Atlantic Province's Special Education Authority, Cleon had to move out of the school into his first apartment. With the century-old building clearly showing its age, the Halifax School for the Blind was closed in 1983, replaced by a new school building a few blocks away named the Sir Frederick Fraser School in honor of its founder. Students would no longer come from all over to live in the Halifax School for nine months a year. Instead, there were shorter visits for specialized training, with the bulk of their education now taking place in their hometown classrooms. From that time forward, teachers from the Atlantic Province's Special Education Authority, better known as APSI, would support blind and partially sighted children throughout Atlantic Canada. Cleon was there the day the wrecking balls tore down the old school and continued working with APSI, helping new generations of blind, deaf, and students with special educational needs. 
until his retirement in 1999, following 34 years of service. Today, over 20 years post-retirement, Cleon continues supporting students in their pursuit of higher learning via his involvement with the APSI Auxiliary. The charity provides students with special toys and adaptive materials to enhance development of their sensory, motor, and communication skills. This podcast is also proud to support the APSI Auxiliary Charity and invites you to do the same. Contact them by emailing auxiliary at apsi.ca. That's A-U-X-I-L-I-A-R-Y at A-P-S-E-A dot C-A. This podcast was recorded and produced by Village Sound at the Village Sound Studios in Halifax, Nova Scotia. For Accessible Media, Inc., created and produced by Ryan Delahanty. Tech assistance from Sam Robinson. And many thanks to Andy Frank, manager for AMI-audio. Special thank yous to Vivian O'Neill, Cleon Smith, Shirley Trites, Joanna Pierce, and staff at the Atlantic Province's Special Education Authority. Our deepest gratitude goes out to Robert Mercer, whose book, Mrs. Beaton's Question, inspired this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the wonderful teachers, staff, and house parents at the school. I'm your host, Terry Kelly. If you enjoyed our show, please do take the time to subscribe, write us a review, and most of all, we would love to hear from any former students who are invited to join us in sharing their tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. Reach us by emailing halifax at ami.ca. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.